0: How are we doing today? Everybody doing well? Yeah, I know. Happy uh, 4th of July to everybody. Hope you're having a great weekend. Uh, This is just quite a season that we're in. I just want to tell everyone who's here or anyone who's watching this morning how encouraged I am, our staff, with Crossroads, uh, who we are and what we've been in this city, uh, in this season I mean, what we've been as a family, to each other, uh, what we've been as a family, uh, to our neighbors, what we've been to our city, to our world. Um, it, it, it's, it feels like we're in a new normal, and no one knows how long this is going to be. And uh, in this, too, we have this amazing opportunity, actually, to practice some things that we normally could be kind of flippant or, or sloppy in. Uh, before all this happened, we could just show up and kind of be quite selfish. Um, now we really have to think about other people. We have to respect things like distancing because we don't know where another person is, how they think. Uh, we have to respect the whole thing of wearing masks, which what's kind of fun for me in all of this not wearing the mask, Um, (laughs) but I feel like the mask is like our opportunity as a church to be what the the first church kind of had with something we read in the Bible, in our New Testaments, where he's like, what's Paul talking about, where he talks about meat offered to idols, and the division that this caused, can we eat the meat, can we not eat the meat, because all the meat in that day, pretty much, was offered uh, to a god in the temple, and then the temples were the meat lockers, and they'd process the meat, and the meat would be sold sometimes at the temple, but oftentimes in the streets at the marketplace. So you were pretty much guaranteed that any any meat that that you bought, purchased, or was presented to you was meat that was offered to the gods. And for some people, it was right; it was okay. For other people, it was not okay. Like, how can you do that? And I really feel that's the way it is right now with the mask. This little mask that we wear could literally divide our church. It could literally cause us to act un-Jesus-like, think un-Jesus-like thoughts, say un-Jesus-like kinds of things. And we have an opportunity right now, through all of this, to actually lay down what we want You know what Paul said with that meat offered aisles? I'll stop eating meat. I'll just stop. And it gives us the opportunity to kind of step into that kind of selflessness. And that will be the difference maker for how we, in a very easy way, can be different than our world. The world will know. The world will know me, says Jesus, by how you love one another. And that's what, uh, that's the opportunity that we have at hand. So keep doing a good job just disrespecting, social distancing, wearing your mask to and from, um, and all that. Okay, we are in this series this summer, a thematic series looking at the Holy Spirit. And we've been kind of looking at how the Bible paints these broad brush strokes. And now we're going to start diving more into the specifics so turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians 3. We like to stand um, as a way of honoring the words of God. Um, also, a sent, just, you know... A sense of anticipation what is God gonna say to us God's Word to us are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need like some people letters of endorsement to you or from you? you yourselves are our letter written on our hearts known and read by everybody you show that you are a letter from Christ the result of our ministry Written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on the tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. Because he made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now if the ministry that brought death, Which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not even look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory, now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such hope, we are now very bold. We are not like Moses. Paul just cracks me up. Uh, we're bold. We're not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But Their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit." Yeah, you guys can be seated. You guys are, it's like you've been pent up for three months. (laughs) So let's first say what Corinthians is. Corinthians is a letter that's written by Paul to a church that's in Corinth. Corinth is one of Rome's most prestigious cities. You could say it's the Los Angeles of the empire. It's this trendy, vibrant, hip City thriving with all this new money. Um, it, it, it's a city that's raising the bar in the arts and humanities and sports and culture. But what all that has done, and this could be true of, of Los Angeles as well, it's, it's produced this celebrity culture. I mean, Corinth is, is is the place where where people would come to to live out their dreams, to make it big, to grow their resume to increase their status, their image, make it to the top. And then at night, indulge in some feasting, some partying, and all the things that a Roman city like Corinth involved. Now, in one sense, I find it amazing that a church is birthed out of a city like Corinth. But then in another sense, I'm not. Because the gospel... Thrives in places like Corinth. And why is this? Because out of the glitz and the glamour, there's oftentimes this trail of hurt and brokenness, and people in a state of disenchantment and, and dreams being shattered. And I was thinking about this this week. We live in Corinth. Because I think America in our lifetime has become this new trendy thing on the world stage. I mean, like Corinth, in many ways, we rose to the top in so many ways. Hollywood, sports, riches, celebrity. I mean, this is our culture today. I mean, you really know this when you travel outside the United States and you experience another culture and you start to realize just how much this is true about our our, our country. And I think we know better than today, maybe than ever before, that underneath all the glitz and glamour of our country, the prosperity, the indulgence, the obsession with self, self self-promotion, all this stuff, that there's a huge trail of hurt, despair, disillusionment. This celebrity culture, it's it's all here. But it's found wanting. And I say all this to say this is not a time for the church to retreat. This is a time for the church to engage our world because our world right now is Corinth and it is thirsty for what it doesn't even know it's thirsty for what we have, our God, our Christ. Now, when you read Corinthians, you realize this church has some serious issues. And almost all of Corinth's issues as a church are really rooted in one thing, worldliness. The church actually becomes Corinth. Rather than shaping the culture around it, the culture of Corinth shapes this church. And this just church then becomes defined by all the issues that... Paul has to address from money to sex, power, the celebrity culture and this is already attested to in our first word, uh, verse of today's text where Paul feels this need to have these letters of endorsement. In this celebrity culture they want their pastor to be a celebrity whose celebrities endorse Paul says, I'm not playing that game. And then in verse one, he says, You want that letter of endorsement? Okay, you, you, church in Corinth, are my letter of endorsement. Look at what God has done in you, how he's changed you, and not just externally or cosmetically. But how God has changed you from the inside out through his Holy Spirit. Now we're stepping into the ministry of the Holy Spirit because this is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit comes into us and changes us. I mean, look at the last verse of our text because this is the culmination. And maybe I shouldn't be reading at the beginning Uh, but it's fleshed out so clearly. We who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. We reflect Jesus in the glory of Christ, says Paul, because we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is spirit. Now, in this text... Paul is also thinking about his text, which is what we call the Old Testament. And I'm confident that there are two texts that Paul has in mind. One is the one that was already read by Tina at the beginning of the service from Jeremiah 31, where God says the the days are coming when I'm not going to just write my Torah on tablets of stone, but I'm going to literally write it on your heart. But the other text that Paul has in mind is Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27. And this is also a text that Jesus had in his mind when he was speaking to Nicodemus. And it's this. This is God speaking. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries. I will bring you back into your own land. In fact, when God says, I'll take you, that's the same word for marriage. I, God, take you, Israel. Then he says this, I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities. And that word there for impurities, Paul just, or I'm sorry, um, Ezekiel just described that in a few verses before this. The, the word, I can't even give you the word pictures. It, 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 it's too like, it prof- I, I couldn't. But it's that kind of impurity that, that God is going to cleanse us from and all of our idols. In The next verse, he says, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I remove from you your heart of stone. I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you to move you, to follow my decrees, and to keep my Torah. Thank you, John, for that amen back there because I want all of us to digest this and to consider what God is saying. Think about all the guilt and shame that we humans experience. I mean, you want to talk about a pandemic, Guilt and shame might be the biggest byproducts of a worldly world. And guilt and shame goes all the way back to the beginning of time. Think about when God came looking for Adam. He said, where are you? Why are you hiding? And in that, God is speaking to their guilt and their shame. And humanity has been hiding ever since, trying so desperately to cover our guilt and shame. Or let's look at it from this angle. How much of who we are, what we do, and say is motivated by guilt and shame? Or let's look at it from this angle. Think of all the rules we have today. Whatever rules they are. Because with the rules come all this pressure. To say it just right. To do it just right. To blog it. In the way we're supposed to blog it to have right positions about everything and then in, in this, why are we constantly blaming, 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 blaming our parents, blaming our school, blaming our politicians, blaming our past, blaming God? And we do it with such venom, you loser, you idiot. We're guilty. We're trying to cover it. We're laden with shame. We're trying to wash ourselves. We're trying to absolve the guilt, and we can't. And now hear these words from Ezekiel 36. God says, I will make you clean. No more guilt. No more shame. Purity from the inside out. God says, I'll give you a new because biblically speaking only God can do this and how does God do it through his spirit that's why God says I'm going to put my I'm going to put my spirit in you I mean, this is just like at creation. It's, it, it's the spirit that moves into the chaos, right into the guts of the tohu Vohu, and the spirit then moving into that brings forth order and harmony and beauty. Shalom, shalom. Life to the fullest. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He comes in, he washes us, he regenerates us, he transforms our hearts and our lives. And we literally become this new humanity on earth for the sake of the world. I like how C.S. Lewis puts it with his his little term, we're we're little Christs. Think about that. Just little Jesuses who from the inside out are, are being transformed into his image. And this is why Paul, in this text, uses glory again and again and again. In fact, 13 times in all does he use this word glory. Now, Paul also knows the story of God up until this point, And he knows that everything that God has done up until that point is glorious. What God did through Israel, what God did through Moses. But what he's saying here is that something now that was launched at Pentecost has been unleashed that that's so 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 glorious that it makes the glory of what God has been doing up until this point empty so what Paul says look at verse 10 for what was glorious the past has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory of the new. Look at verse six. At what Paul says. He says we have such confidence as this as ours through Christ before God, uh, not that we are competent in and of ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, for God has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not the letter but of the spirit, for the letter kills, the spirit gives life. Paul says we were servants that have been trusted. With the new covenant. And right now that just like falls on our hearts because now we're into these theological terms. Um, but when you hear the word covenant, think marriage, think of the marriage be- be- between God and his people. And you can't understand the new covenant without understanding some things about the old covenant or the first marriage between God and his people. In that first covenant, God sees a people who are slaves, who he later described them as the least of all peoples. But for some reason, God just sets his affection on this people and like a knight in shining armor, comes and rescues them from their slavery, takes them to himself, take, I, God, take you, Israel, And in this, Israel binds their hearts to God through vows. And those vows are what we call the Ten Commandments. And God literally wrote those vows with his finger onto tablets of stone. And probably what is most glorious in all of this is that God literally binds his heart to his people forever. And he makes his home with them and he walks with them I don't think it can, can get any better than this and this is the old covenant of which Moses is the mediator of and if you don't see the stunning glory in all this then I, I, I don't really know what to say but here's the deal As glorious as that old covenant, that first marriage was, it revealed something that was seriously broken. And we get the first hints of this in verse 3, where Paul says, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human heart. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that the first covenant was written on tablets of stone. The new covenant will be written on our hearts. Now so many Christians read this text and then everything that follows and and they say, see, the law, that letter, and they say law, the law is bad, it's broken. And they keep reading because Paul then says the letter kills. And then in verse 7 he says... The ministry of Moses is a ministry of death, and then in verse nine, it's a ministry of com- condemnation. But I want us to be careful right here. It's not the letter that is broken, or its loss, or the wedding vows. Israel's broken. I mean, those letters that are inscribed on on tablets of stone, that's Torah. Torah itself doesn't even mean law. It means instruction. It's God laying out the path to life. Tell me, how can that be broken? Something that God wrote with his own finger. What's lacking is God's people. What's bad and broken are the hearts of God's people, not the tablets, not the letter. And if you know the biblical story, you know this this is already seen on, on Israel's wedding day. On the day that God says, I God take you, Israel, to be my bride. Moses then goes up the mountain. God gives him the two tablets. The two tablets are literally the wedding contract. God gets a copy, Israel gets a copy. And while this is all going on, Israel grows really impatient. Their minds start drifting back to Egypt and to the sensual worship of the Egyptian gods. And then they fashion one of those gods, and then the text says (laughs) they rise up to play. That's a PG way of describing something very orgy-like that is taking place. And I want us to see what's happening. On their honeymoon, Israel's already in bed with another lover, which is why when Moses returns from the mountain, those tablets which spell out the wedding covenant, he smashes them to signify this marriage is broken. It shattered. And then he performs the test for adultery, which is to drink water mixed with bronze. And the people drink it, and 3,000 people die that day. This is why Paul says about the Old Covenant, it's a ministry of death and condemnation. What I think is pretty cool is that Acts 2 The day God unleashes his spirit and inaugurates the new covenant, how many people were baptized? 3,000. So 3,000 people died when the old covenant was inaugurated, and 3,000 people were baptized into new life on the inauguration of the new covenant, which is why Paul says what he says in verse 6, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, sadly, all that Israel was on her honeymoon is really what Israel was throughout her marriage to God. She's this adulterous wife, which is why the prophets constantly are calling Israel out by saying things like, Israel, uh, why are you a prostitute? I mean, God found you as a slave. He made you his queen. How is it that you can just sell your heart and sell your body to all these other lovers? And here's what we need to know in this. In all of this, Israel did not just break the rules or even her wedding vows. She broke God's heart because God over and over again says, I am a jealous God. God is this love smitten husband who is jealous even for his unfaithful wife. What's broken here? It's the people. More specifically, it's their heart. As much as God did for them, one huge problem remains. The heart. We also see this in what Paul talks about with Moses' veil. (laughs) I don't know if you know this. Um, You can complain about wearing a mask, but Moses had had to wear a veil. He had to put a bag over his face. Do you know why he had to put a bag over his face? It's because Moses was intimate with God. Moses is always with God. In fact, in Numbers 12, uh, God says to, about Moses, he says, Moses and I are so close. We talk face to face, mouth to mouth. In fact, God says we're so close, Moses can even see my very form. And see, every time Moses is is with God, his his face became radiant, so much so that the people became afraid of him. They said, so Moses, would you please put a bag over your face? That's why in verse 7, Israel couldn't look at Moses because of the glory of his face. Again, same thing in verse 13. Couldn't look at Moses because of the glory that was in his face. Now listen, the problem here isn't Moses. It's Israel. It's Israel. Because from the very beginning, Israel kept its distance from God. Israel didn't want to go up the mountain, even though it was invited up the mountain. Moses, you go up the mountain. God's too scary for us. Moses, that's your job. Pastor, that's your job. Oh, and by the way, When you come down the mountain, because we don't like to look at your face because of what happens up on the mountain between you and God, put a bag on your face. And at one point, Moses even says in this, he says, oh, that everyone was a prophet, that everyone was filled with the spirit, that we all would go up the mountain. But they didn't. And see, the Old Covenant, as glorious as it was, it highlights the problem. The problem is not God. The problem is not uh, what was written on tablets of stone. The problem is not the Torah. The problem is not the marriage. The problem is the people. More specifically, it's their heart. Think about how this is manifested even in someone like David, who the Bible in both the Old Testament and New Testament, says the man after God's own heart, David too had a heart problem. I mean, all those illicit loves that took root in his heart, those destructive desires that caused him to lust for one of his best friend's wife. And see, this is what sin does. It it, it comes in and it it seduces us. And instead of in that moment, David owning his sin, sin and repenting of it, He allows that sin to fester, and that sin soon owns David. And as David hides and covers that sin, soon he gives way to it. And he has sex with his best friend's wife. And he continues to just allow that sin to fester in his life. He hides it and he covers it to the point where he murders the husband of this woman. One of his best friends. Psalm 32, David writes this, describing this period of his life. He says, when I kept silent, when I kept silent, and he said, your hand, O Lord, was heavy upon me. And it felt like my, my, my whole life and body was just like wasting away. And there David is he, he, he's just like Adam he, he's hiding in the bushes he's trying to cover his shame he's trying to cover his guilt he's he's desperately in this moment still wanting to think that he's okay when he's not okay and I say what a picture of humanity laden with shame and guilt desperately wanting to believe that that I'm okay, that that you're okay, that we're all okay, that, that everything is okay, and that the only thing that isn't okay is anyone or anything that would say that we're not okay when we're not okay. I think so much of religion today is this game. It's just this attempt to, to tell ourselves that we're okay, to, to prove to ourselves that, that we're okay. I, I think our politics today, whether you're on the right or on the left, is, is, is our attempt to just step into trying so hard to be okay and with the side that's okay and against everything that might not be okay. But here's the deal. God must come to us like he did Adam, like he did David where we hear him say, where are you? Where are you? Not the people around you, not your neighbors, not this city, not this nation. Where are you? Because when God asks that question, he is looking at one thing. His eyes are looking right at our heart. Because the source of all that's wrong in our lives and in our world, it is the human heart. And in that moment, when God says that to us, We can play the victim. We can blame someone else. We can say, well, she made me do it. We can subscribe to a new set of laws or a creed or embrace all these doctrines or another ism and even kill God. Maybe all that will absolve my guilt. But here's the deal. We can't hide. We can't cover ourselves. We can't remedy our sin. So we're left with one other option. We can humble ourselves and repent. This is what David does. David's prayer of repentance in Psalm 51 is such a great gift. It's probably the part of my Bible that's most worn out. It, I don't think there's another text that I've read more often than Psalm 51. His prayer is amazing because it's more than just a prayer for forgiveness. It it, it all builds to this pinnacle moment when David prays, God, create in me a clean heart. And see, at that moment, you can feel David's pathos. He says, God, I literally need you to create. I mean, that's the same word used in Genesis when God created the world, when God's spirit went into the chaos and out of all the tohu vevohu, God brings forth order and shalom and beauty. So think about what David is asking God to do. God, my heart has become utterly tohu vevohu and I need more than forgiveness. I need you, God, to literally Do what you did when you created the world. You need to to take out my heart of stone. And you need to create within me a heart of flesh. Because David sees his problem. And he goes to the root of his problem. His heart. God, create in me a clean heart. And this is exactly what God wants to do. And this is why the old covenant will fade into something far greater, which we call the new covenant. Which is why God says, Behold, the days are coming, not only when I'll take you, but when I'll wash you, and I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to write my Torah on that heart. Because here's the deal. God isn't into what religion is into. God isn't into cosmetic change. God isn't into polishing off our rough edges. God isn't into even morally reforming us. God wants to rip out our hearts of stone, hearts that have become dead, that are loveless because they're so selfish and proud, and he wants to replace that heart of stone with a heart of flesh, a heart that pulsates with love for God, that loves the thing God loves, and loves in the manner, and to the depth, and the selflessness that God loves us with. Do you want this? Do we long for this? Because you know how this happens? David knows. What's what's the next thing out of his mouth? Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. David knows he can't do it. He can't change his heart. And that he needs something as great as a heart transplant. And only the spirit can do that. Has the spirit done that in your life? Sometimes I wonder even about myself. Am I just morally reformed? Or am I spiritually transformed? Because those are two very different things. One is outside in. The other is inside out. (laughs) One is all about me and, and, and what I do. And one is all about God and what he does in us through his spirit. How do you know? How do you know if you're just someone who's morally reformed or someone who's spiritually transformed? Well, the, the obvious thing is verse 18, we become like him. We look like him, we talk like him, we act like him, we're humble like him. Uh, this is the fruits of the spirit. But that's in a later text, a later sermon. But there's a verse before 18 that I think is the proof that the Holy Spirit is in us. Look at verse 17. Now the Lord is spirit. And you know, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. <laughs> if you think I'm going to go all July 4 on you right now, I'm not. <laughs> because we are talking about a far deeper freedom. And some of you I know are, are, are thinking wait, freedom, I don't, I, I don't need freedom, I'm not a slave. If you're thinking that right now, think, think of all the things that we're a slave to. Some of us are slaves to approval. The only way that we'll ever be liked is by measuring up to everyone else's standards. Do you like me now? Did I do well enough for you? Am I good enough for you? Some of us are slaves to appearance. I mean, look at all the standards that, that we can create in our mind, the, the things that we have to, to measure up to. Physically, morally, socially, politically. Think about how we have to hide our flaws. Some of us are a slave to performance. If I just do enough good, if I achieve enough, if I make enough, then I'll know I'm okay, that the world will think I'm okay. We can be slaves to this world. We can be slaves to comfort, to money, to sport, status, popularity, celebrity. Celebrity. We can be a slave to our emotions, whether it be fear, worry, anger, bitterness. These things can come in and own us. We can be a slave to even guilt and shame. Slave to perfection. Slave to always needing to be right. Having to win every single arg- argument. the Slave to needing to always be the best. Being noticed. Being praised. Being a celebrity. <laughs> being endorsed with letters of recommendation. See, the Spirit comes in, sets us free from all this. We're going to talk a lot about that in the weeks to come. How the Spirit does this. But let me just whet our appetites. Remember at Jesus' baptism, And the Spirit descended upon him like a dove, and then he heard that voice, his Father's voice, Shouting down at him, this is my son whom I love and whom I delight. And Paul tells us in in Romans 8 that in the same way that the the spirit comes in and and testifies to our spirit that, that God is more than our creator, he's more than ruler, he's more than our savior, that God literally is our father and that we are his children who he delights who he, who he loves, he's proud of that the one who literally knows us to the bottom of our being yet loves us to the stars I mean, this is what the spirit does in our life and then the spirit shines a spotlight on Christ and he opens the eyes of our heart and he says do you see him do you see what he did for you what it cost him to bring you back to the Father. And through this, the Spirit says, that's why there is now therefore no more condemnation. See, this is the truth that that the Spirit, he doesn't even just preach it to us, he writes it on the tablets of our heart and we're free. And this is how Hearts of stone become hearts of flesh. Our hearts of stone, God doesn't just take his law and creeds and like a hammer beat it and change it that way. Instead he melts it. Behold what manner of love The Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. People say our world needs revival. I don't think so. I think the church does. And I think this would be a great week for us to be like David and stop complaining about the world And stop calling people losers and idiots. And stop pontificating on how we're right and our views are right. And lay all that down. And let God, through his spirit, let us see our hearts. And then let his spirit speak to our hearts. And testify and write on our hearts what he wants to write. That we have a father who loves us, that delights in us. And we have a son who brought us back to him and took the condemnation upon himself. So there is now therefore no more condemnation, no more guilt, no more shame. And we're free. We're free. God, would you revive your church? God, that starts in my heart. That starts in our hearts. God, would this not just be a sermon? God, may your spirit cause our hearts to repent, to turn to you, and to experience you. So like Paul, we could say how deep